We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. In 1959, director William Wyler and star Charlton Heston gave the world a soapy epic that placed fratricidal passion front and center. In 2023, we make a return trip to Scotland to try a surprisingly affordable blended whiskey. The film is Ben-Hur. The whiskey is John Barr Reserve Blend. And we'll review them both. This is the Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are kicking off our William Wyler miniseries with his 1959 epic of four-hour proportions, Ben-Hur. Here's my question. What are the chances that two of the most famous directors of all time are Billy Wyler and Billy Wilder? I know. And they're both very German. Uh, and so, mm-hmm. like, William Wyler's name is, I mean, if you just pronounce him as V's, you pretty much got it. But yeah, William <laughs> Wyler and Billy Wilder. It is incredibly easy to mix them up if you're not familiar with their work, because they couldn't be more different in terms of, like, how they <laughs> go about their about, business. Right. They're exactly the same. <laughs> oh, man. I am very excited to dive into today's movie, Brad. It has probably been... I don't know, 20 years since I've watched Ben-Hur all the way through, and I have thoughts. And <laughs> So you were you were 12 years old when you watched it last? Probably. I mean, okay, so let's, let's call it 15, but like, it's been a long time <laughs> since I've been like, you know what I should do today? Fire up Ben-Hur. <laughs> no, 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 honestly, Bob, I, I, I wasn't really trying to make fun of you. I think the last time I watched this movie, I was probably in my middle school... 12 to 14 year old era. So yeah, it, it's been a very long time since I watched this film. I often bemoan like the death of the movies and how kids today just don't care about movies anymore. <laughs> the cinema. But there is like a generational divide where even for me, I'm like the four hour movie just does not appeal to me on a very basic level. And I understand and appreciate many four hour movies. But I very rarely feel inspired to fire one up. It it just it's a huge time commitment, man. Yeah, it, it one might say it takes up about four, four hours. Of your whole time. hours. <laughs> and like when you break down your day, Bob, you're working a 40 hour work week. Mm-hmm. You have multiple children. You have a wife that you, you know, want to spend time with. You have friends. You have a podcast to run. How often are you really going to spend four hours committed to a film? Do you know why, too, Brad? It's because if you time it out from beginning to end, the movie is four hours long. <laughs> I don't know that we could emphasize this enough. Really yeah, it's long almost, movie. It's almost like a reason why I have never seen Oppenheimer in theater or Dune <laughs> in theater. 
It's almost like you're making my argument for me. The funny thing is, I think Dune's only like two and a half hours, but it just feels so much like a three hour movie that it's like <laughs> yeah. you just got to round up at that point. Yeah. And that's pretty much what I've done with Ben-Hur. I think the official runtime on this, including like the uh, intermission and everything is 342. But once you're hitting mm-hmm. 342, you're you're a four hour movie. I don't care what you say. And so <laughs> this is probably our longest movie since Gone with the Wind. I don't know if that we've done anything approaching this length in years and years, Brad. I mean, The Return of the King, I think the theatrical version oh, yeah. is about three and a half. Three and a half, yep. So that would be the only other one that comes close. Other than that, man, even like three-hour films, we don't hit super often. Mm-mm. No. So uh, thanks a lot, William Wyler. You're off to a great start. I put this movie at the beginning of our retrospective with William Wyler because, I mean, it just doesn't seem like something I want to build to, even though it is by far his most famous movie. It just kind of seemed like a no-brainer to get the four-hour one out of the way first. And I'm kind of glad we did it this way, Brad, because it gave us a huge and prolonged and extended palate cleanser from Stanley Kubrick. Which we surprisingly maybe didn't need as much as we thought. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know that we were not looking forward to Kubrick, but here we are on the other end of it. Pretty satisfied with two of the three movies. Yeah, and I think that it may have actually damaged a lot of what I think of William Wyler for this film in particular, just because we spent so much time talking about how Kubrick moved the camera and was such a master at planning out each shot individually. And this movie, you very much feel how stationary the camera is all the time. What are you talking about, man? He's he's got uh, he's got it on a freaking chariot. Yeah, that's true. The, the that's circus. true. Yeah, I guess that does cover a multitude <laughs> of the other sins in the movie. Ten of the two thousand minutes are dedicated <laughs> to horse racing, dude. But what a great horse race! I texted you in the middle of this, and I just need everybody to know the chariot race in this movie is like ten minutes of perfect cinema, like the, I. I don't know of many 10-minute scenes that are better than this. It's so hard to talk about it, too, because it's like it is one of the most famous set pieces in the history of movies. You know, it's like saying like, oh, man, the car chase in Bullet or the car chase Mm -hmm. in The French Connection, you know, whatever it may be. And it's like, okay, everything that could be said has already been said about it. But then you go and watch it again and you're just like, what am I supposed to say? Like, it's clearly the centerpiece of this movie. They build to it. And then everything that happens after it is essentially an extended denouement from that. Like, it is mm-hmm. what the movie wants you to take away from it. And it's just damn good movie making. Yeah. And even the the final scene between Masala and Ben-Hur is just the most tense. It's just incredible, man. Mm. And yeah, everything after that kind of kind of falls off a little bit because the, the whole the whole. uh <laughs> the whole Jesus Ten- subplot. All, yeah. <laughs> well, all the tension of the movie just completely falls to pieces. Yeah, for sure. All right, we'll talk about all that. But before we get there, but first of all, how funny must this be to someone who has no idea what the movie's about? We've <laughs> The whole Jesus subplot. We're talking about chariots and oh, man. Uh, I think we need Brad to explain this movie, and we have an aptly titled segment just for that. So let's get to Brad Explains. Brad's going to give us the movie plot with only 60 seconds ticking on the clock. So let's go ahead and hear your take. 
with this little segment that we call Brad Explains. Brad Explains is the part of the podcast where Brad breaks down the plot of the movie that he has just seen, often for the first time. This sounds like it was not your first time seeing Ben-Hur, but let me clarify a little bit. Had you ever actually sat down and watched this thing front to back? Uh, Yeah. Okay. When I was like 12, 13, 14. I know that we've talked a lot about like, you didn't have cable growing up. This was very much, mm-hmm. it may not have been on oh, cable. Yeah. It may have been on, you know, like uh, like AMC or something. It might have been on TCM, but it was very much like when my dad stumbled on this, he's watching at least an hour of it, you know? And so I've seen yeah. fragments of this movie out of order a hundred times. Yeah, I mean, I, the movie I could completely transpose that onto, and it's kind of the same movie, is uh, The Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. Like, it's on every year for Easter. Yep. It's on in the background. I I know for a fact, I have a distinct memory of our family sitting down and watching the whole thing one year. Like, commercials and all, we sat down for five hours and watched the Ten Commandments. But other than that, I just remember being on in the background every year. And so Ben-Hur kind of feels like that as well. It's definitely a cable movie from the, you know, 80s and 90s. I tried to watch a little bit of the Ten Commandments on TV this year, and fun fact, super boring movie. Like, <laughs> like absolutely nothing going on in that bad boy. It's got nothing on the Prince of Egypt? No, not at all, man. <laughs> all right, dude, you have 60 seconds on the clock to break down the plot of this movie. We are getting into full spoiler territory, so if you're really concerned about it, you can go spend four hours watching Ben-Hur, and then come back and join us for the remainder of our podcast. Brad. One minute on the clock and go. Ben-Hur is a just absolutely epic of a film that follows the life of a man in Jerusalem named Judah Ben-Hur. He is a Jewish uh, aristocrat who is best friends with a Roman centurion. Uh, Not even centurion. He's some higher up dude. Just a guy. Named Masala. He's just a guy. And Masala is coming to Jerusalem to try to stamp out Jewish resistance when Judah Ben-Hur will not agree to help him with that. Masala makes his life hell and eventually has him sent as a slave to the galleys. After many years, Ben-Hur makes his way back into Jerusalem and becomes a chariot racer, kills Masala in a chariot race, and meets Jesus Christ himself. Mm. Like, like in person too, not just yeah. like in the metaphorical way. Like, yeah, no, like Jesus gives him water and it gives him the will to live mm. because Bob, fun fact, Jesus is the water of life. Yeah. The, the great thing about this movie, Brad, is that it doesn't know what the word subtlety means. So no, when they, when they have a metaphor going on, they really elbow you right in the rib cage a whole bunch of times uh, and uh, say, eh, eh. <laughs> Um, what did you right, think man. about Weiler's decision to keep Jesus's face from ever being shown? Yeah, dude, I my overarching note on this movie and I have notes on like the actual rest of the movie. <laughs> I really hate pretty much all of the Jesus subplot and not even the Jesus subplot, because I think like functionally, I think it actually serves a really interesting purpose in the narrative of these characters. I just hate That like by this point in the late 1950s, Hollywood is in full swing with the biblical epic because the Ten Commandments had been such a blockbuster that they were like eight more of these, please. And so they're just like (laughs) making these huge over budget widescreen epics set in biblical times. You mean 
the Bible was like the source material for movies back then, the way comic books from the 80s and 70s were for movies now. Yeah, except that except that the comic books are much closer to the source material than what they did with the Bible in the 50s. Like the story of Ben-Hur, it's based on a novel. It's not based on any actual biblical story. And I think that that kind of helps a little bit because it's like Bible adjacent and not quite. (laughs) like messing with the text of the Bible to make an entertaining movie. But it has that over the top 1950s reverence for like Presbyterian Methodist Jesus. You know Mm. what I mean? Like, oh, yeah, like they blur his face and he's always dressed in pristine robes. And like they talk about him the way that people who actually were with Jesus didn't even talk about him. They recognize that he's the Messiah like immediately. And they're like solving problems of Christian theology as he's getting crucified. Things that took theologians hundreds of years to settle on. And it's just like, (laughs) can we just make this a little bit more what it would have been like to interact with Jesus in the time and not like this overly reverent, you know, 1950s Jesus. The thing that was the kicker for me was the fact that every time you see Jesus, you see the back of his head, right? Mm. Except for one time where they kind of put a splotch in front of his face. (laughs) And I don't know if, I'm sure you noticed this, but you know the Warner Solomon, you know, head of Christ Mm -hmm. painting? Yeah. His his hair is very clearly based off of the Warner Solomon head of Christ painting. Listen, that that Jesus Jesus uses conditioner. Like, it is... It's very clear. <laughs> it's beautiful, man. It's beautiful hair. It can is I just go ahead. Can I say this about the whole Jesus subplot? Yeah. The start of it, you know, you kind of have the the wise men and all that. It sets the stage for what we're going for here, a big epic. It's okay. The ending parts of Jesus don't really jive with the rest of the film. No. But the scene where Jesus gives him water is incredible. I think that like any time that they're showing the effects of Jesus's words on someone's life, mm-hmm. it's it's really emotionally affecting. And I think sometimes it's really hammy and it's like poorly written. Like, uh, you know, every time Judah's girlfriend, what's her name? Esther? No, Esther's his sister. What's his girlfriend's uh, name? Yeah, Esther. Okay. Anytime she's like, you know, you really just got to see this guy. I've been listening to this guy. And then she'll like quote scripture, like verbatim, like King James Bible version of the scriptures. <laughs> yes. She, you know, and she remembers his words like verbatim. And it's just like almost as if she had heard God speaking, you know, <laughs> and it like I hate that. But then at the, the very end of the movie, Brad, I made a note after I was rolling my eyes so hard through that entire subplot at the end of the movie. There's a shot where Charlton Heston is standing next to, is it Bartholomew? What's the guy's name? Like the old man that says he uh, wanted Balthazar. To, Balthazar. And he's like, look where it all got us, you know? And they mm-hmm. show him like having a, a, a spiritual awakening or like realization. And they just put it on Charlton Heston's face. And he's essentially staring like directly into the camera with tears in his eyes. And his face is all in shadow. And then like he slowly leans forward. And his face is just bathed in light. And it is the most obvious metaphor I've ever seen. And yet, when the movie slows down enough and lets you have 
an experience that someone's feeling rather than them telling you what they're feeling, it's so much more effective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's so many there's so many moments where they could have done that in this film mm -hmm. and they just talk a lot and Dude, it, does, every, it doesn't always work every single time that charlton heston's mom opened her mouth in the last half hour of the movie <laughs> i had i just wished that the leprosy had won you know what i mean i'm just like <laughs> no i don't know what you mean that is that is cruel bob <laughs> She's what did Martha like, Scott ever do to you? Oh, she she's looking at him and she's like, he's carrying the cross as if like what's what's she say? I wrote wrote it down as though he were carrying in that cross the whole pain of the world. <laughs> like sister, listen, you are not that good of a theologian. You got to stop. <laughs> Quit while you're ahead. He healed your leprosy. Just please stop talking. Are are you saying that women can't be good theologians, Bob? <laughs> that's, that's exactly what I just said. <laughs> that's, yep. I'm, that's what I That's heard. the hot take from this episode, Brad. <laughs> oh, my gosh. We're, we're about to go off the rails. So let's talk about the movie itself a little bit. I And I do think we need to kind of segue out of the Jesus subplot while also acknowledging the title of this movie and of the book that it's based on is Ben-Hur colon... A Tale of the Christ. Like it is very intentionally set, not just at the time that Jesus was doing ministry, but as a way of weaving in this this fictional character's redemption arc with his interactions around and with Jesus. And I think that if you're only kind of a little bit aware of the movie Ben-Hur, it's probably surprising how much this is actually a Jesus movie, because Every clip that's shown, you know, if you've ever seen a clip from the chariot race, like nothing about this movie on its face feels like a Jesus movie. And I think that there are moments where they do a really good job of kind of weaving Jesus into the background and 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 how he's transforming people's lives kind of quietly. Mm -hmm. And then there's also moments where they're like, we really got to shoehorn some Jesus in here. And I guess like just to set the stage as we transition into the other themes of the movie, Brad. How do you feel like what's their batting average on weaving the Jesus parts into the rest of the movie? I mean, if you say 30 percent of the time it works well, that's a great batting average. <laughs> so if we're going to go with that's the baseball I metaphor, probably shouldn't have said batting average. <laughs> I, I think that the well, and, and here's the thing, Bob, the Jesus of it all doesn't really come up that much. Like it's the opening scene with him being born. There's the time where he gives him water. There's the sermon on the Mount. And then there's him being crucified. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Am I missing any? So four. Yeah. And then I, it's woven into like five other dialogue scenes where it feels later even less yeah. necessary, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that when he is actually on screen, I I'm okay with the opening birth scene. I thought that the water, the water of life scene was incredible. The Sermon on the Mount scene I thought was really effective because it shows where Ben-Hur is at in that moment. Mm -hmm. And then the crucifixion stuff just, uh, like I said, at that point, almost all the tension of the movie had leaked out. And so I, it just didn't feel like it vibed with the rest of the film. And it didn't really make sense other than to kind of wrap up the whole leprosy story. Yeah, so I, I, think, I don't know. I think what they're trying to go for is that this is a movie ultimately about this character of Judah Ben-Hur's redemption and like spiritual 
revivification. And I think it's pretty effective. And they do a good job of making that be what sends you out. Because, like, you wouldn't know that was the emphasis of the movie if they hadn't cut the movie off right after it happens. And I think that's kind of the worst thing you can say about it is that they actually put more emphasis on stuff that they are trying to tell you isn't as important as this thing, but they don't put enough emphasis on the thing that's supposed to be important. None of the Jesus stuff, frankly, is anywhere near as exciting as the chariot race. And so, like, if you're trying to make a movie about a guy's relationship with Jesus, maybe don't put this gigantic, awesome chariot race where people get trampled to death in the middle of the movie. I think what works better is if you don't do the whole, like, we don't hear Jesus speak, we don't see his face. I think it works a lot better if you if you pull that off. You say, all right, we're not going to look at him or talk to him and do everything the same way. But at a certain point, three quarters of the way through the film, before the chariot race, I think what you need to do is have him have a conversation with Jesus. The change comes over him. He still goes and does the chariot race, but somehow in the chariot race, he saves Masala from dying. And it's because he has been truly impacted by the words of Christ. And then, boom, you finish. Maybe Jesus heals the the leprosy. Maybe he doesn't. But I think the story is about Masala and Mm Ben-Hur. It's not about his parent, his mom and sister having leprosy. Right. And so if you did something like that and it ends after the chariot race with Masala and Ben-Hur reconciled, then boom, 2 Corinthians 5, Ministry of Reconciliation, you're set. Well, and that's that's part of the problem is I feel like it's not even so much about their leprosy as it is they're trying to argue that this is this entire movie has been his his quest for revenge. And that once he gets the revenge, he feels even more empty and angry about things than he did before. And so the last 10, 15 minutes of the movie is him finally forgiving himself, forgiving Masala and getting over this need for revenge. But they don't they just don't do a great job of it. And what really bothers me about it is like. They try to have their cake and eat it, too, from a narrative standpoint. Even if he does feel really bad and really empty about getting his revenge, he still gets his revenge. And they know that the audience wants to see him get his revenge. And we don't really care if he gets forgiven by Jesus for it. Like, we want to see that guy die, right? Yeah. But that's the the problem with the movie. Exactly. Like, the movie has so much more power and is much more faithful to the biblical text if he forgives Masala and does, you know, Masala doesn't die. Right. And or if they just stick to the revenge thing, like it's it's kind of like, yeah. you know, Francois Truffaut has that really famous quote where he says that there is no such thing as an anti-war movie, because just by depicting war, the the sheer cinematic nature of war makes it look so exciting that even if you're trying to talk against it, like we're so invested in it that it's almost like we are encouraging it. And uh, I don't know. I would say that uh, Doctor Strange Love or How I Learned to Stop Worrying <laughs> Love a Bomb does not make war look cool. Well, so in any case, I think it's kind of the same principle here, though, where it's like you're trying to tell me that his quest for revenge is ultimately, you know, a folly. But you're also making me want really badly to see this revenge mm-hmm. enacted. And you're really mm-hmm. trying to have it both ways. And yeah. to your point, man. Let, and let's get into the rest of the movie and away from this Jesus subplot for a <laughs> well, minute. I was going to say, has revenge ever looked better? Oh, man. What a great revenge story. <laughs> what what an incredible wrap up to the revenge plot with that freaking race. 
Oh, man. Do I love watching people get trampled by horses? What a cool thing to see on screen. Absolutely wrecked, man. (laughs) (laughs) I did not know the human body could be flung that far by a chariot. (laughs) Just truly great stuff from William Wyler. But yeah, but but Masala deserves it because he had spikes on his chariot. He did. He's bad. He did. So I've got a great quote from William Wyler. He's talking about the chariot sequence. And he says, originally, the chariots were supposed to come out and stand in line. And then the race was supposed to start. I said, no, my God, we must take advantage of this set. It was my idea to make them go around once in formation. That part of it I shot, showing the set and the chariots parade around. Somebody told me they never used to do this in the old Roman days. I said, to hell with that. That's the way I'm going to do it. And you know what? This is why William Wyler is one of the greatest directors in Hollywood history, because my Mm -hmm. man knows when to depart from history. And uh, spoiler alert, he departs from history the entire movie. But (laughs) for the sake of cinema, like that sequence is incredible. The buildup is great. Some of the best looking shots in the movie are there's like right before they go out and race. Charlton Heston has like a moment of prayer back in like the, I don't know what you want to call it, not the catacombs, but whatever. And he's kind yeah. of in shadow and he's looking out at Masala or whoever he's looking out at out in the light. And it's just like, it is such a beautifully composed set piece. And then you actually mm-hmm. get inside the Coliseum or whatever you want to call the racetrack. And it's like, they really built those sets, man. Yep. And one of my big complaints about the camera work is that so many of the shots are only designed to show you how big the set was that they built. Like they put the camera <laughs> yep. in weird, impractical places where you can't tell what humans look like. And they're just like, look how freaking high this wall is, man. We built this. <laughs> and yet, like for that, Can for you the blame purpose them? of that scene, it's perfect. Mm-hmm. I was on the IMDb page for this and I saw that there was like a 2013 or 14 version of Ben-Hur that mm-hmm. was made. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's kind of a stacked cast. Like, uh, Morgan Freeman is in it. Uh, who else? There's one or two other, like, pretty big name actors in there. And it has, like, a 5.8 on IMDb. It's terrible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But if you watch the trailer for both films, you, like, kind of understand what's wrong with Hollywood nowadays. Because the trailer for the new Ben-Hur just focused on the chariot race. And it just looked so, so bad Mm -hmm. compared to the 1959 version. Like the CGI just looked not great. The the way they had the hero fighting and doing things just felt cheesy. This chariot race is one of the most epic things I've ever seen on screen. So this movie had a much smaller budget. I want to say it was like a seven or eight million dollar budget. It ballooned up to 17 million dollars by the time they finished shooting. Part of that was this chariot sequence. Like they're shooting this in Italy and they basically have they're they're working with the biggest studio in Italy to achieve this. And they're using all their resources. But it took them between five and six months to finish shooting just this 10 minute sequence of the movie. And it was such a huge production that there were tourist groups who came on buses every hour on the hour to visit <laughs> the set while they were actively shooting this part of the movie. Like, it's it's just crazy to think about. And to your point earlier about the camera work in this scene, 
you know, it is really great camera work because it it fully fills that extra wide screen image. But even then, like they're smart enough to know, hey, we've been just kind of stationary this whole movie. Let's not get too crazy here. It's not like they're using like crazy dolly shots or any sort of zooms mm-hmm. or anything. The camera is still basically stationary, but it's either just like panning as things fly by or they've just attached it to a chariot. And so you're just like you're seeing the background fly by even as everything else is stationary. And to your great point about the crappy CG in some of these new movies is that they don't understand that, like, if you don't have a point of reference in the background, it's like uh, who says this? It's in the aviator. Leonardo DiCaprio says Mm, it like, yep, yep. You can't tell how fast the plane is going if there's just empty sky behind it, like you need a mountain or something. That's what they do so well in this movie because the camera is just strapped to a chariot. You can see how fast everything is whizzing by and it feels so much more tangible than the elaborate sort of CG flips and stuff they have them doing in the the new remake. Yeah, it's completely terrifying and exhilarating. And you tried to get me into the theaters to watch Dune and Oppenheimer and all these movies. I just want to go to a theater and watch this 10 minutes. That, like, that's the only thing I want to do, Bob. Yeah. All right, Brad. Um, we've gone kind of long, actually. We're almost at a half hour talking about just the Jesus subplot and just the chariot race. So uh, if we're measuring it out based on how much time that takes up in this four hour movie, then congratulations. This is going to be our first three hour film and whiskey episode. <laughs> I think we need to just hit pause here, Brad. We'll come back and talk about like all the boilerplate stuff we usually do. The performances, the direction. But let's try this John Barr blended scotch. What do you say? Let's get to it. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. All right, so today we are checking out John Barr Blended Scotch Whiskey, or I guess we should call it John Barr Reserve Blend Blended Scotch Whiskey. This is one that I always see at the liquor store amongst the cheap blended scotches, and it doesn't try to have a label that looks like it was made in the 1970s and or the 1870s, and I think for (laughs) for that reason, it stands out. It's this really sleek, beautiful, kind of minimalist design and they make it look a lot classier than its price point, Brad. Yeah, I was going to say the it's got this really beautiful black label with like very simple gold lettering. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to lie. I'm not normally a sucker for marketing, but this is a very attractive bottle. Bob. It sure is. And so I picked up this bottle at the OHLQ last call section. Not that they've stopped carrying John Barr, but this is a one liter size bottle that I think I got for 20 bucks. I don't know if they're carrying the one liter size anymore, but Brad, if you like the whiskey, I've got plenty to go around, so I'm happy to give you a bigger sample. I gave you a smallish sample because this is, well, let's be honest here, an 80 proof blended scotch whiskey, and those are kind of a crapshoot sometime. Yeah, they they truly are, Bob. It seems like they might be getting rid of it soon in Ohio. I only see a one liter and 1.75 liter being offered. Wow, okay. 
So we'll see. Uh, actually, the 1.75 liter is $30 in the state of Ohio, and it is in stock in quite a few places near me. So it seems like they're just switching to the 1.75 liter. All I want for our podcast is to someday like cause a run on some random whiskey in the state of Ohio. <laughs> so that yes. was they're like looking at their spreadsheets and they're like, what the hell made people in, you know, October <laughs> of 2023 buy John Barr so much? It's us. <laughs> we did that. 100%. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> All right, man, let's dive in. Let's talk about this whiskey a little bit. What are you picking up on the nose? Yeah, so the nose here is pleasant, if unremarkable. Mm -hmm. uh, there's honey. There's vanilla, the barley comes through, and I, I think that there's a little bit of peppermint kind of kind of uh, present on the nose. None of it stands out, but none of it is detracting from the experience. So I'll give it a 7 out of 10 here. Yeah, I'm pretty close to you. I'm going to give it a 7.5. This reminds me of blended Irish whiskey, but not as, uh, I don't know, what's the, what's the gentle like, mm, it's just a yeah. little bit more harsh and prickly and rough around the edges. The ethanol on this gives it a little bit of a kick that almost reminds me of like, you know, if we're going to say it has honey, it's almost like hot honey. You know, like there's like a cayenne pepper yeah. kick, but it's just mm -hmm. the ethanol here. So all those same notes that we typically get like melon, they're here and they're really nice. But I'm a little concerned because it smells just a little bit rough around the edges. I'm at a 7.5, but let's give it a sip and see what we think. Yeah, as I as I got into the palate here, I think it is a little bit nicer than the nose. The the best part about it is that there's no surprises. Like the barley, vanilla. For me, it almost turned into like a fresh vanilla bean. Mm -hmm. There's hints of orange. There's a little bit of a, a dill vegetal kind of feel, but it's just hints, just mm -hmm. a little bit here and there. I think it's a really pleasant palate overall, Bob. I'll give it a seven and a half out of ten. I was drinking it while you were giving your notes, and it was like getting the DVD commentary of my tasting experience, because every time you said something, my palate was starting to pick up on that thing, and you were giving words to it. So I, I don't have anything to add, except that on the orange part, I got a, a little bit of like a really, really bitter like uh, cocoa powder. It was almost like a chocolate orange a little bit, hmm. but everything yeah. else you said, man, like vanilla bean is there, the orange is there. This is pretty nice and it's inoffensive. It's a little bit thin, but, you know, am I scoring it objectively or am I scoring it based on the fact that it's a $20 scotch? I think I'll go ahead and just give it a seven and a half again so that I'm kind of straddling the line between the two. Yeah. And I think the finish for me is where the rough edges kind of started to show their colors. The, the vegetal was decent. There was some campfire smoke, but for me, the the barley turned into almost like a sour barley, almost like it had been sitting in, you know, like almost like it was like fermenting on its own, but just laying on the threshing room floor. Uh, it turned just a little sour for me. It's not bad on the finish. It's just not quite where it had been. So I give it a six out of ten here. Yeah, I don't think it's a terrible score. I guess I'll go ahead and give it a six and a half. And I'm being a little bit more objective now than I am just like trying to evaluate it within the category of cheap whiskey. It's not great, but it's certainly not bad. And I think I'm going to give it a heck of a good value score when we get there. But for now, I'll give it a 6.5 on the finish. Yeah. And as far as balance goes, there's not a lot to say here. It's nice, solid flavors all around. Falls off a little bit at the end. Seven and a half. 
yeah, I'm with you, man. I'm going to give it a seven, I think, just because it is like it's unremarkable. But like I keep coming back to it, man. It's really solid. I'm going to give it a seven here and I'm going to give it a nine and a half on value, Brad. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're spending $30 for 1.75 liters, right? So, you know, for you Americans out there, definitely not like myself, that's 1,750 milliliters, right? Mm -hmm. And normally we have 750 milliliters, Mm -hmm. which means we're getting 1,000 extra milliliters, Bob, more than a regular bottle, (laughs) and it is still only $30, (laughs) That's Listen, a lot of whiskey, man. If like, you want, if you want a scotch-based drink, and you don't need a like a whole heck of a lot of punch behind it, this is like you could do pretty much no better than this. Like this is like w- the platonic ideal of a mixing drink. I want you to compare it to like a boxer from the Rocky franchise who like was one of the early boxers he beat up on. <laughs> I think this is more like uh, if he was going to beat up his trainer Mickey. Like this is the okay. Mickey of the. Mickey probably drank this. Yeah. You know? I'm okay with it, man. I probably had some punch back in the day, but it's a little too diluted for that now. My nine and a half really, really boosted my score here, Brad. I'm coming out to a 38 out of 50 on this one. Yeah, I'm a little below you. I give it an eight and a half out of 10 on value. Uh, I'm at a 36.5 out of 50. So, like, for a 20 to $30 blended scotch, I don't think you can get much better than this, Bob. All right, we're at a 74 and a half or a 37.25 out of 50. Now, again, we are inflating our scores a little bit. I just go ahead. Sorry. Just so everybody knows, I'm not inflating my scores. I am a good evaluator of whiskey, unlike Robert, and I judge everything <laughs> based on its own merits. And then I judge the value based on its own merits. And that is that. Well, there we go. Uh, I do think they're boosted by the value a little bit, but this is a heck of a good example (laughs) of a $20 whiskey. I'm going to heartily recommend buying a bottle. Do not try it at the bar. That seems like a waste of money to me. Like if you need a bottle of scotch and you're not looking for like a single malt, then pick up a bottle of John Barr. It's really good. The most important question you're going to answer today, Bob, Mm. does this compete with Monkey Shoulder for like Mm. best value scotch? In the chariot race of blended scotches. <laughs> uh, monkey shoulder still reigns supreme to me. There's just a lot yeah. more going on with monkey shoulder, but... Is it, it, it's the Ben-Hur of, of blended scotches. <laughs> I love that we're going with like these simple one-syllable names today. Ben-Hur and John Barr. Mm. I'm good with it. Nailed it. <laughs> Let's get back into talking about Ben-Hur. What do you say? Let's get to it. All right, everybody, that was John Barr Reserve Blend, a blended scotch that, man, punches way above its weight, Bob. Mm-hmm. Totally agree. Just man. like a Jewish slave. Hey. <laughs> uh, speaking of. No, no, no. Let's, let's do. Let's do. Speak, <laughs> speaking of Jewish slaves, <laughs> I am fascinated I by what you have to start say, talking Bob. about Charlton Heston, but that needs to wait until after our next <laughs> segment, which we call Two Facts and a Falsehood. Gonna try to stump you, Bob. Two are right, and one is wrong. Two facts and a falsehood. Two facts and a falsehood is the part of the podcast where Brad presents three items to me as fact about the making of this movie, one of which is a complete lie, and I have to figure out which one is the fabrication. 
Brad, I'm doing pretty darn good at this point of the season based on where I was just a few short weeks ago. Yeah, you have been like 13 in a row or something. I've, uh, I'm on a six-game win streak and nine of my last 12. So I'm, I'm doing okay. Uh, will this be the week that, that dethrones me? We shall see. Yeah, I'm excited to dethrone you, Bob. <laughs> All right, man. Let's get into it. Fact number one is Quintus is driving his chariot in the victory procession. He is accompanied by his slave, Ben-Hur. In Roman tradition, a slave would stand in the chariot behind the victor, often holding a laurel above their head, while whispering to the victor that all glory is fleeting. Jeez. Fact number two, Jack Hawkins was nearly kept from playing the role of Quintus due to a severe case of tonsillitis that he came down with right before his portion of the shooting in mid-1958. Mm-hmm. Fact number three, Stephen Boyd, the actor who plays Masala, actually has blue eyes, and he was forced to wear brown contact lenses to emphasize the difference between himself and Heston's Ben-Hur. The contact lenses caused him terrible pain, forcing him to reschedule many scenes where, so that he could rest his eyes. Hmm. That's hard because I know that contact lenses were either like just becoming a thing or like and or um, I mean, they were they were not made out of any sort of flexible material. So like if you had to wear contacts back in the day, it was hell. Number two intrigues me. I'm glad you brought up Jack Hawkins. This is uh, a guy who was in the bridge on the River Kwai, which we just watched Mm -hmm. last season. And I know that he had had some qualms about being in this movie at all because he didn't want to just be associated with these kind of big budget epics. But I haven't heard the tonsillitis thing. So I'm kind of circling two. One sounds believable enough that I'm almost kind of just letting it sit there. And that's usually my downfall. These were really good, man. This is your best Thanks, your best set of three th- statements in a while. I'm going to say two is the falsehood, but I have very little confidence in that. Bob, you are on a incredible streak. Yes. You are correct. Mm. Yeah, the contact lenses came out in 1936. Oh, I did not know that. Wow, that's earlier than I would have thought. Yeah, it was in 1960, and this is all Google research I'm doing in this very moment. 1960, uh, a man from Czechoslovakia developed the material first used for soft contact lenses. Hmm. I am looking at my record at Two Facts and a Falsehood, and I'm sitting at 15 and 10 on the season. You are five over 500. Yeah, that means that if I win one more then I am guaranteed to finish 500 or above. You are. So uh, the gauntlet has been thrown, Brad. I have slapped you with my glove and said something (laughs) rude in French. (laughs) Your metaphorical glove. (laughs) All right, man, let's get back into talking about Ben-Hur. And I guess, like, let's talk about the cast here. And we have to start at the top with Charlton Heston, who is an interesting figure in Hollywood history, primarily because... We talk about him in the same breath as people like Gregory Peck or Kirk Douglas, and yet he was in so few true classic movies, people really only know him because he was in Ben-Hur and because he was in The Ten Commandments. He also was the star of Cecil B. DeMille's 1952 movie, The Greatest Show on Earth, which won Best Picture. But like, 
he just doesn't seem to have like the wide breadth of movies that someone like a Gregory Peck or even like, you know, a, a James Cagney or a Bogart would have. It's just mm-hmm. kind of it's kind of interesting because we get to Ben-Hur and I'm like, oh, man, we've never done a Charlton Heston movie. Then I think about it and I'm like, there's only like two Charlton Heston movies that we would do anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess he he made his presence known and he chose the right projects. But it's weird to talk about him as if he had the same kind of career of some of these other guys. I mean, for me, it feels kind of similar to talking about Charlie Chaplin, where I feel like everybody knows who Charlie Chaplin is, but how many people have actually sat down and watched an entire Charlie Chaplin film? Mm. And it's it's kind of similar here. Like, everybody knows who Charlton Heston is. Everybody knows that he's in these biblical epics. But how many people at, at this point, this day and age have really sat down and watched The Ten Commandments or Ben-Hur? And the answer just is, frankly, not a lot. Like, unless you're above the age of 50, 60, it doesn't seem like somebody that a lot of people have watched. And I will say, my boy Charlton's kind of a weird, weird actor. It was really funny. You sent me a very random text that just said, (laughs) Charlton Heston is a weird-looking guy. And, you know, I didn't notice it at first. And then I started thinking about it. Like in the right lighting, it makes absolute sense why he's a movie star. Like he has the Mm -hmm. chiseled look. But then in most instances, it's not quite chiseled as much as it is a very skeletal look. (laughs) I I just I thought this at many points. Like I know exactly what this man's skull looks like. Like it's just his face hangs over his bones in a very interesting way. And I'm not trying to mm-hmm. knock the guy's looks, but he he both does and does not have your basic standard movie star look. I don't know if that makes sense. No. Yeah, it does. There there were many times where I looked at him. He has kind of a Matthew McConaughey look. Hmm. I, I think that they have like similar facial structure, but the way he uses his mouth, uh, he just kind of smiles a little bit weird and yeah. laughs a little bit weird. And his acting is just a little bit off. And there's moments where his acting is like pitch perfect. Oh, yeah. And it, and it fully hits what we need him to do. But then there's other times where I'm like, I d-, like he kind of feels like a, a B rate theater actor mm-hmm. who's like trying a little bit too hard. And my final thing I'll say about m- my boy, Charlie Hess. He looks a million times better with a beard. Listen, I was we're. We're going to call this the Stallone theory <laughs> Yep, that every actor looks better with a beard. And when my man is in the Roman slave ship and grows a beard and gets absolutely yoked, like yeah. he has that scene with Quintus where he gets called to his like chamber or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he's just sitting there with his shirt off. And I'm like, Charlton Heston was freaking jacked. And it's not even like the the standard 1950s. Robert Mitchum thing that they used to make fun of on Family Guy where they're just kind of sucking in their gut and they're sticking their chest out real far so that they look intimidating. Yeah. No, this guy was in like Fight Club shape. It He looks amazing <laughs> in this movie. No, he, Fight Club shape is the best way of putting it. Dude, he's standing there and Jack Hawkins is sleeping and you're like, I think he could just like twist Jack Hawkins head off with one hand. Yeah. Like he is so ripped. 
and and very attractive, I have to say, with the beard. Yeah, the beard, man, it does it. It 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 covers up a lot, man. <laughs> so on on the acting front, though, Charlton Heston was known for being kind of a hammy actor, and it makes sense why he would attach himself to melodramas like this, or why directors would see him as a good melodramatic actor. There are moments in this movie where he literally throws himself on the ground to express grief. And like, mm-hmm. and I'm sure that's in the script, right? But it takes a specific kind of over-the-topness to be able to pull that off. And the thing with Charlton Heston is, I was actually surprised that he could pull off the much smaller moments, too, and the interiority of the character. The scene mm-hmm. where he kind of escapes his jail cell, grabs a spear, and holds his friend Masala at, you know, knife point, and asks to know where his mom and sister are, and he kind of breaks down. There's so much tension in that scene, and there's so much nuanced emotional processing going on there. And he really pulls off a lot of these scenes much better than I remembered him being able to pull them off. Yeah, he has an incredible ability to channel anger. Mm-hmm. And who who was it that we talked about earlier this season that you said was incredible with anger? Oh, Hugh Jackman. Yeah, it, it honestly kind of reminds me of how we talked about Hugh Jackman having this this unique ability to channel like pure raw anger. And he does that not only with anger, but with sadness and mm-hmm. disappointment. He he really brings his A-game for so many scenes in this movie. But there's also a lot of scenes where it feels hammy. And I will fully go on record saying, I'm here for it. I like I bought into the melodrama. I like it. I enjoy it. But but I also notice that it's there. And Brad, if there's only one other person in this cast, well, let me say it like this. Aside from Charlton Heston, I don't think there is really much good acting going on in this movie, aside from the guy that plays Masala, Stephen Boyd. And when I was looking through the list of Oscars this movie won, because it wins 11 Oscars, it sets the record for most Oscars ever won, which is then tied by Titanic, like almost 40 years later, and then tied again by The Return of the King. Those are the three movies that have only ever won uh, 11 Oscars. I saw... Go ahead. The, the other two won Oscars that were not around when Ben-Hur was. So Correct. If, if you're a purist, the Ben-Hur victories are pretty impressive. Well, so I was going to say, I was looking through the list and I saw Hugh Griffith wins Best Supporting Actor for this movie. And I'm like, okay, sure. He did a great job as Masala. I didn't realize it till later on, like after the movie. I was like, <laughs> wait a minute. That guy's name's not Hugh Griffith. And so we'll talk about Hugh Griffith in a minute. but. If there's any supporting character in this movie that deserved attention, it is absolutely not the guy that actually wins the Oscar. It's Stephen Boyd as Masala. Yeah, Hugh Griffith is incredible, but in a caricature-like way. Mm-hmm. Like, he, like, he's a perfect caricature, which is what they needed for that role. Stephen Boyd is one of the best antagonists we've had in a long time, Bob. Oh, and it's I think he's actually maybe the best written character in the whole movie, because... You can tell why he gets to the point where he hates Judah and his family like Ben Hur, the family of her, like kind of slaps him in his face in his role with the Romans. And, you know, it's understandable if you understand the Jewish religion, but like he wouldn't as a Roman because he's cocky and arrogant. He thinks the Romans are better than everybody. And so when he goes to their house and kind of asks for their help and then Charlton Heston kind of says a whole bunch of mean shit to him. 
it's like, okay, I understand why he's going to be petty in this moment. And then you see him throw the family under the bus and you're like, oh, man, come on, dude. And then you start to see him double down on these things because he is too proud to take back or apologize. It's such a believable, you know, arc into becoming the antagonist. It's not as if he is wholly evil the whole film. And yet, even within that, you get these little breadcrumbs dropped that like when he went into battle and massacred a whole town and doesn't want to talk about it like this guy has seen and done some stuff. And the the house of her has no idea what they're dealing with here. So it's it's really mm-hmm. well done because they balance those two things so well. Yeah, and I, I think that one of the great scenes with him is when Hugh Griffith, the uh, Oscar winner here, goes and is like making a bet with the Roman nobles. And he's basically throwing the gauntlet down for, for Masala. The way Masala interacts with him is simultaneously so like disregarding and arrogant. And yet he has this seething intensity underneath it all that it's just perfect, Bob. It's such an incredible performance. All right. Let's talk Hugh Griffith for just a brief minute. Uh, This is a British actor who I I actually couldn't find out much about his actual ethnicity. Um, He's clearly doing some form of brown face in this movie, but he also does seem to have some like, He's clearly not just like of Anglo heritage, but like he's basically doing Alec Guinness in Lawrence of Arabia three years earlier, except like more offensively brown. Do you you know what I mean? And (laughs) and I'm a little bit like, okay, Even if you can find a way to set aside the, the brown face of it all. I just don't see this as like a supporting actor winning performance. Like, it's fine. But he's only in like three or four scenes and he's kind of wily and he's clever and he gets one over on the Romans and it's like a fun part to play and you you choose some scenery, but it's not really comic relief and it's not really advancing the plot. And he's certainly not integral to the plot in a lot of ways. So, like, I just I don't know what was going on in voters minds in the 1950s, but like. When you watch this performance, Brad, does this stick out to you as the Oscar winning performance from this movie? No, not not at all. He I mean, I think he gives a really great performance. And I think part of it's the fact that his character brings a really needed tension breaker to the film. Mm. Like, dude, when he's talking about all of his wives and how he loves them all and and stuff, but then he brings the horses in and he treats them so lovingly like it's genuinely funny, and he does an incredible job of that. I, as I was watching his performance, all I could think about, you know, you're correct in saying Alec Guinness from uh, Lawrence. All I could think about was John Rhys Davies from Indiana Jones. Hmm. Oh, that's a good like, one. Yeah. Like almost a exact, you know, Rhys Davies is pulling his performance in Indiana straight from Ben-Hur. I, I think that he was fine. He's good. It's like a solid B plus A minus performance that is so secondary that I was amazed it was even considered for like best supporting actor. Mm-hmm. Like Masala is the supporting actor here. He is the one who builds Ben Hur's character arc, not you know the Sheik. Well, if there's anyone else that I think we should mention, it is Haya Hararit who plays Ben Hur's girlfriend Esther. And she's introduced early in the movie as basically a servant of the house of her. And so, you know, Charlton Heston doesn't give her the time of day. 
And you could tell the moment that she's introduced, like you are by far the most beautiful person in this movie. You're going to play a key role here as a love interest. And that she also, does. The only Jewish, actor <laughs> the only or actual actress. Jew amongst the Jewish people <laughs> in this movie. Like yes. there's an there's an actress in this named Kathy O'Donnell who plays his sister Tirza, and we'll see her next week in the best years of our lives. But I mean, her last name is O'Donnell. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> guys, what are we doing here? Like, we have one actual Israeli person in this movie, and I don't want to knock her performance too much. Because when I actually step back and think about this character, she is a big nothing burger of a character. Like, she is there <laughs> to look really, really beautiful, and they light her impeccably. And she does. She's, like, breathtakingly beautiful. And then she's there to be the emotional support for Judah and his family, and then to also recite the King James Bible. And it's not really fair to her to call it a bad performance, because... I mean, she has a, a very thick accent, so, like, I don't even know if English is anywhere near her first language. Like, I have to kind of grade her on a curve a little bit here. Yeah, I think she does a really great job. It's unfortunate that they chose to use so many American and British actors and then throw her in the midst of it, because she does kind of stick out like a th sore thumb. Mm-hmm. And, you know, William Wyler talked about how he wanted the Romans to be British actors because, you know, American audience would see that as pretentious and the the main Jewish actors to all be Americans because they could relate to that. And honestly, like, I actually don't think that that's a bad thing to do. Like, it, it doesn't bother me that there's no Israeli actors here. And I think it's actually kind of a intriguing and smart decision to pit you know, the classic British versus American trope, but like stick to it, like make Esther an American as well. It, it feels either like she's a token Jew in the movie or like she's just there because she's beautiful. Mm -hmm. and, and both reasons don't serve to really show the fact that I think she does a really great job in the film as a, and is a good actress, but the script doesn't do her any favors. All right. So real quick, let's talk about William Wyler. And for being such a famous director, he's not really known as he was respected by the auteurists, but he's not up there with like a John Ford where he has a very distinct style and he moves the camera in a very particular way. And even just researching this movie, I think it's important to set the stage for Weiler to know that like he actually hated using the widescreen format for this movie because he felt like either there's there's too much of nothing on either side of your subject or you have to just fill it with unnecessary stuff and then it gets distracting. So like the camera movements of it all, he's not known for. And he actually said, I try to do camera movements that are smooth and unnoticed if possible and that help to make the scene more interesting. A lot of directors use the camera as a toy. They think it's something to, to, to play around with. You see a lamp or a post sailing across the foreground for no damn reason. It doesn't help the scene. It means nothing. <laughs> the movement of camera and the use of camera should be such as to enhance the scene and give a good composition and clarity. And I guess that's the best way that I could even think to put it. He is just a workmanlike director. He wants everything to be as efficient as possible. He doesn't want to do anything extra or quote unquote artistic if he doesn't have to. And this movie is Kind of the purest distillation of that that I can think of. The camera barely ever moves. The action is very clear and concise. And like when people need to walk across the room, they do it. And, and there's no Spielberg wonders happening in this movie. 
it also <laughs> makes it kind of hard to pinpoint what is what are his tendencies going to be throughout these three movies because there is no obvious style that springs to mind from a movie like this yeah he he doesn't use the camera in enough dynamic ways to give you what you're going to expect from him but i think it kind of works for this film like there's there's almost a documentary like feel to it because the camera's never moving you know as an audience member you don't really have somebody representing you in the film you're just there observing the things that are happening so I, for me i think that the camera works really well and it and it serves to highlight the circus race even better and like you said, the circus race, while it's a lot of movement, it's still, in a certain sense, a stationary camera. Like, you don't get them panning around the chariot. It's just one straight shot of the chariot moving. And yet, that motion and energy and kinetic force is accentuated by how still the camera has been the whole film. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think that he did that very intentionally. I, I would have to at least guess that he did. All right, man, I think we're in a good spot to get to our last segment of the day, which we call Let's Make It a Double. We're near the end of the episode, so thanks for listening to the Film and Whiskey Show. Let's pair another film with this one, even if it's struggling. It's the final segment of the day, now let's make it a double. Let's Make It a Double is the part of the podcast where we pair this movie up with another one to make the perfect double feature. Brad, uh, I'll let you go first today, man, because I don't really think mine is that strong, and I'm hoping you can bail me out a little bit. Man, I'm going to pair this. Uh, I'm making this up on the spot, Bob, just so you know. I'm actually going to pair this because of how beautiful and how much I loved the Jesus giving Ben-Hur water scene. I'm actually going to pair this up with a television series called The Chosen. Hmm. You know, have I you still have not gotten yet? around to watching The Chosen. I have heard really good things about it. Dude, even if you are not a Christian or religiously inclined, like it's it's an extraordinarily well-made television series. And that's coming from somebody who at this point has watched, I don't know, how many movies, Bob? Five million? <laughs> yeah, somewhere in that range. Here's the thing about The Chosen that sticks out to me. You know the John Mulaney sketch where he talks about Ice Cube in the Law & Order SVU? And how oh, yeah. he finally figures out what sex addiction yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he starts naming, like, you mean when somebody yep. eats too much chocolate cake? Yeah. Yes. Or can't stop betting their money on the ponies. <laughs> and John Mulaney's like, I could just watch that for 45 minutes until it fades to black. I could watch Jesus in The Chosen do miracles and heal people for four hours until it <laughs> faded to black. And there was something about the scene where Jesus gives water to Ben-Hur that just reminded me of what I watched in The Chosen for three seasons. So I'm going to pair it with The Chosen. There is a part of me that wants to like needle you about Les Miserables and how this movie does a really good job at showing like the internal change in people spiritually in a way that like I only really have ever seen in movies like Les Miserables. The problem is I don't want to make that comparison, but I do want to just put it out <laughs> on the table that I, I'm still shocked that you don't like that movie. But I will say that the obvious pick here for me is Ridley Scott's Gladiator, because it is essentially the same movie. It is about yep. a guy who is in a position of power, who pisses off the wrong guy and gets made a slave, and his family becomes victims of the guy that he pissed off. 
and he has to come back and try to get his revenge against him, and it's set in Roman times, and there's a whole bunch of action. There is no Jesus in Gladiator, and I think that's the big thing. Gladiator is also not four hours long. Uh, and I will also say, I think both movies are kind of very much flawed movies, but they're both really good at what they're trying to do. And if Ben-Hur is not your speed, I think you could basically get the gist of Ben-Hur just by watching Gladiator <laughs> and then maybe turning on one episode of The Chosen after that. And then you'll basically have the entire storyline <laughs> of Ben-Hur. Oh, that's incredible, Bob. Yeah, I think Gladiator is is a very good pick here. There's honestly, man, there were like a lot of movies that I saw, you know, whether it's like a little thing like John Rhys Davies character in Indiana Jones. I was like, oh, direct ripoff from Ben-Hur. Think about Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. No, thank you. Tell me. Tell me that they weren't trying to, in some small way, recreate Ben. Oh yeah, with the pod with the racing. Pod. Oh for sure, yeah, a hundred percent. And it's not a, it's know, not a coincidence that that is maybe the most effective action sequence in the whole prequel trilogy. Exactly, like, because Lucas yeah. knew exactly what he was doing there. Yeah, and so uh, there were just so many movies that draw their inspiration from Ben Hur. Yeah, I mean, like the the. The scene where they're racing the cars in the L.A. River in Greece and the guy had the bad guy in Greece has the spikes on his tires like it's. Oh, yeah. It's yep. an obvious Ben-Hur reference. And I think it's supposed to be funny, but isn't because Greece really sucks as a movie. <laughs> but I mean, like, yeah, this movie, the the tentacles from this movie, the branches go very wide. It's a, it's a very influential movie, even if not a lot of people nowadays have seen it. And Brad, I think that takes us to our final scores here. I've really been going back and forth on what to give this movie because I had to watch it over multiple viewings because it is, again, four hours long. The first 45 minutes of this movie truly sucked. Like, I mean, <laughs> they were so bad at setting the stage for what this movie was actually about. I felt like I came in in the middle of a conversation that two guys were having after I watched an unrelated short film about the birth of Christ and it got, it wasn't until like the 45 minute mark that anything of note happened. And then you get a pretty incredible movie for a while. And then you have this tacked on ending again. I think that some of it's really well done. Like the storm after Jesus dies on the cross is incredibly Dude, well edited. Come on. There's this great little insert shot shot from behind the cross as the lightning is like illuminating Jesus almost in silhouette. And it's just a shot of Jesus's hand and fingers poking up over like the cross. And it's cut right when they notice that the leprosy in his mom's hand is gone. And it's just mm -hmm. like a really, really nice touch. It's obvious. Like nothing in this movie is subtle, but sometimes I, they, they do it really beautifully. Can I also say that I don't think I've ever seen a movie that better depicts the horror and terror of contracting leprosy in biblical times than this movie. Mm. Like you feel like hopelessness doesn't even begin to capture the abject horror of of getting leprosy in this film. And I, I think that's something that for me as somebody who you know reads the Bible pretty often you don't fully understand how desperately bad leprosy was until you watch Ben-Hur. And yet, like, Judah and Esther are just flat out carrying around lepers 
like just touching them everywhere and hey, not man, contracting that, leprosy you're at talking all. about you know like <laughs> apparently leprosy was not that contagious cuz you could just piggyback ride these people and they like nothing would happen to you uh so anyway all that to say this movie has some very obvious flaws and it doesn't totally work for me but they don't literally do not make movies like this anymore and I think it's still a really important movie, if not one that works totally for me. I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10. See, here's the thing, Bob. I'm I'm like with you 95% of the way. I think that this is like an 8 out of 10 movie. And then I'm just going to say it again. That 10-minute chariot sequence is like a top five scene in film for me. Hmm. It's incredible. So I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10. Wow, like like okay. that scene alone bumps it up an entire point for me. I I just can't believe what William Wyler did in 1959 with that chariot sequence. Counterpoint, if you take that 10-minute scene out of this movie, there is still three hours and 50 minutes of movie to get through. <laughs> because this three movie... Three hours and like 30 minutes, thank you very much. Because this movie is four hours long. If you if you hadn't heard that, <laughs> it is very long. So we're coming out to an eight point five out of ten on average, which seems to be pretty much in line with what IMDb thinks at an eight point one. But we want to know what you think. Have you seen Ben Hur? First of all, how long has it been since you've seen it, and how much of your day did you have to give up to get through this whole movie? <laughs> you can find us on all of our social media accounts: Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube at film whiskey or you can jump onto our discord discord is where we are talking to you guys the fans of the film and whiskey podcast it's an incredible place to have conversations about the things you care about without a bunch of other randos jumping in and bothering you you can find a link to our discord at the end of every single one of our show notes we'll be back next week with a movie that brad i have not talked about at all this season but it's probably my most anticipated episode of the whole season. It's his 1946 underseen masterpiece, The Best Years of Our Lives. I am so excited to just crap all over it for you. It might end this podcast if you do that. So <laughs> join us for that one next week. But until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time. Next time.